On Sunday, June 1st, 2008, a fire engulfed the back lot of Universal Studios Hollywood. It was a big fire, thick, billowing smoke. It swallowed iconic movie sets, a New York City streetscape, the courthouse from Back to the Future, 1.21 gigawatts. The fire also claimed as its victim a nondescript warehouse whose official name was Building 6197. Two-thirds of the building was used to store videos and film reels, but the rest, about 2,400 square feet, was a sound recordings library owned by UMG, the world's largest record company. It was a total loss. In the days that followed, UMG claimed that nothing lost in the fire was the only copy, that there were copies of all those recordings in other warehouses in other places around the country. We're talking about copies or master tapes of recordings by artists such as Rosemary Clooney, Nirvana, Belle Biv DeVoe, Dolly Parton, Busta Rhymes, Joni Mitchell, Elmore James, and over 700 more. It's since come to light, although UMG still maintains only 22 masters by five unnamed artists were lost, that there were likely far more masters than just those 22, and they were likely the only copies. Think about it, over 700 artists, a who's who of 20th and 21st century popular music, lost. So, why do we care? Welcome to the A440 Podcast, the one music podcast everyone can get in tune with. I'm your host, Charles Fiore, and today we're going to be talking about sound. Now, for background on this episode, head on over to the New York Times website, find the article, The Day the Music Burned by Jody Rosen. Then, head over to the New York Times music podcast, Popcast, hosted by John Caramonica, the June 13th episode, Can Record Labels Be Trusted to Preserve Music History? Listen to that. Both of those go into full detail about the UMG fire. They discuss at length what artists were lost and what that means sort of in the greater scheme of music history. And they dive far deeper than I ever could uh, on my podcast. So, And I've linked to both of them from my website, a440pod.com. But the question remains, why is this fire important? Why is it important that the master copies of these recordings were lost? Well, we know master copies are a big deal to the artists. We see artists negotiating uh, rights to their own masters all the time. Back in the early days, for example, of Hitsville, USA, the record companies owned the masters. and They owned the rights to make decisions on what happened to those original recordings, how they were used. Now, of course, we're seeing artists increasingly negotiating to own the rights themselves. There's also an archival issue. Our idea of what's important culturally or musically changes over time. What we believe is important or brilliant now is different from what we thought 100 years ago, and it's going to be different 100 years from now. So that when we have some of these artists whose master recordings were allegedly lost in the fire are not household names now, but it's certainly possible that in 50 years we rediscover these master tapes and realize that 
Some of these artists were really ahead of their time or deserve a closer listen. But finally, and most importantly, the reason this issue of losing the master recordings is important is the issue of sound. Now, every time you make a copy of music, some fidelity is lost. What I never knew, and which the article by Jody Rosen explains, is that only today are we really hearing recordings that are close to what was actually recorded at the time. All right, does that make sense? So for decades, our ability to record far outstripped our ability to play that recording back. Recording technology was far more sophisticated than the playback technology. So we weren't hearing a lot of the nuance and intent of the musicians, but all of that, of course, was captured on the master recordings. So when you go back and listen to the master, quote, the record can snap into sharper focus, its sound and meaning shining with new clarity and brilliance. Now, I've experienced this myself without actually knowing why. I remember seeing the Cirque du Soleil show in Las Vegas many years ago, uh, the Beatles show, Love. It's a Cirque show built around songs from the Beatles catalog. Now, really, if you're a music fan and you have a chance, you really ought to go see this show, even if you're not the biggest Beatles fan in the world. There are 6,351 speakers for 2,013 seats in this theater. Each seat is fitted with three speakers, including a pair in the headrest. It's designed by Jonathan Deans, who was twice nominated for a Tony Award for Best Sound Design of a Musical. Uh, he's also done a bunch of Cirque shows. So the $100 million set design has something to do with my experience, sure. But I was also quite literally, thanks to changes in the playback technology, hearing these familiar Beatles songs in a whole new way. You know, in a way that literally wasn't possible prior to that technology coming into existence. I remember leaving that theater after the show, you know, impressed with the visuals and the athleticism of the performers, but really impressed with the sound. I never heard the Beatles like that. So now, thanks to this new technology, we are only just sort of beginning to appreciate the quality of sound, the intent of the original master recordings. So now let's get a little bit sciency. Okay. Recently, I was supervising intern who was half my age, and he rolled into the office uh, one day with a whistle that he'd gotten in trouble in high school for uh, using in class. This whistle could be heard by his classmates, uh, but wasn't able to be heard by his teacher. And we had a great time in the office, all the coworkers. He would blow on the whistle. I could hear it, but a couple of my coworkers could not. And they started getting a little miffed at me and uh, my intern acting like as if we were making it up. But actually what was happening is that we, our ears were still young enough, basically. We're physically able to hear frequency, to hear a pitch that their ears, uh, being older and wiser, were not, no longer able to hear. So of course this kind of thing drives teachers in school batty. You know, it's the same principle as like a, a deer whistle or a dog whistle. Human beings hear, you know, 20 to 20,000 hertz, most sensitive between 2,000 and 5,000. That's the resolution, if you will, of hearing. Uh, like the way photos need to be at least 300 DPI to look good on Facebook, right. So a master file recording, like the kind that were lost in the UMG fires, they are uncompressed, right? In those files are a range of sounds and various associations and 
Those take up a lot of storage space on a computer. So to be able to play Poison by Belle Biv DeVoe on your phone, the master file of that song is compressed down to 256 kilobytes per second. And that's, that's today's compression. In the aughts, when MP3s were just rolling out, I mean, music files were compressed to half that. So the thing is, 256 kilobytes per second sounds okay on your headphones and your earbuds if you're working out with the roar of the treadmill and dudes slamming weights in the background, but it's not really enough to render true sound. Now for that, you need 16 or even 24-bit sound files, which take up a ton of space, but are good enough for audiophiles like us. In fact, one record label, ECM, which records a lot of jazz artists, including one of my favorite albums of all time, Keith Jarrett's Colon Concert, only just sort of made their recordings available for streaming because streaming finally gotten good enough to preserve the integrity of the original piece. I mean, that's how hardcore they are. You know what I mean? They're like, until the playback technology is good enough, uh, we're not even gonna let people listen to the music. So for a file to be big enough to sound good, there are storage concerns. There are concerns about download times. But as hard drives get cheaper and faster Wi-Fi gets cheaper, in theory, we should be soon treated to better sound, better sound every day. I mean, when you think about the 90s, late 90s versus early 2000s MP3s, I mean, occasionally you'll still run across uh, MP3s on Amazon that have not been remastered. Like, for example, <laughs> there's the America song, Horse With No Name. And I added that to a playlist recently. I was putting together a my ultimate classic rock compilation and I threw that on there and it's a real dip I mean when you go from when you go from the first song the car is just what I needed to America's horse with no name there's a real dip in fidelity and quality of the audio recording because either no one's gone to remaster America's greatest hits album go figure or Amazon's not making it available or I just picked the one that's not remastered whatever anyway you can definitely sometimes just kind of messing around on Amazon or these streaming services uh, you can you run across an MP3 that hasn't been remastered yet, and you can definitely hear a difference. Uh, same goes for Bluetooth. I've only just sort of converted to Bluetooth headphones because I feel like finally, just finally, in the last year, year and a half even, um, Bluetooth technology has gotten to the point where I'm not losing too much sound quality when I'm listening to uh, music on my headphones. Uh, I was a wired guy through and through up until about, yeah, about 18 months ago. So now, of course, uh, you have music companies producing music design to be listened to with earbuds or whatever Apple's calling their headphones, earphones, uh, headphones, which means maybe we may be in for a decade of trebly pop music without the nuance or texture. Uh, two things that really can't be appreciated at 256 kilobytes per second, much less half that. But it's interesting to me that now record companies are actually producing songs designed to be listened to on the go on portable, crappy headphones. So, this is why the master tapes are important, and why the fire at Hollywood Studios was such a tragedy. An article in PC Magazine by Jamie Landino puts it this way. If a master recording sounds 100% great, as consumers, we only get 5% of it with an MP3 file. This is usually enough for most listeners, because most of the time, you know, we're listening in the gym, or as we're cooking, or as we're doing chores around the house, whatever. But, if you really listen you'll hear the problems on an MP3. You know, MP3s don't support a big bass sound. There's low kick drum, mushy sounding cymbals, 
blurry at text, sustains, delays, in short, the texture is a loss. We lose all the nuance and frequency and craft in an MP3. So you can see why the folks on the creation side are annoyed by this. All that hard work they put into playing, recording, and engineering the music, and we're only getting 5% of their intent. As listeners, we're really missing out on content. I mean, there are times you may not care on the beach or whatever or work, but really, you should try to listen to uncompressed audio through a component stereo system or a really nice set of headphones. That's really key. Otherwise, the music just sounds tinny, very trebly, uh, tinny. Where can you find uncompressed files? Well, Bandcamp for one, which I'm a new convert, a relatively new convert for, Bandcamp lets its users choose what file format to download. And if you want the best sound, you choose the FLAC, FLAC. Uh, for more classic choices, you can check out HD Tracks, that website. I recently took advantage of a free 90-day trial through Amazon Unlimited Music. They're offering HD and Ultra HD streaming for free for 90 days. I check, out the, check out the pricing uh, long-term. I think it's gonna it would run you about another 6 or $7 a month. I got to say, I didn't know what to expect, but I've unwittingly and just sort of accidentally been definitely noticing the quality of sound in certain situations. If I'm listening through my home stereo system, which is a component system, or if I'm listening through headphones, uh, Sylvan Esso, actually a Durham band, very little bit electronic, a little poppy, but they sound amazing in this new, in HD. And I, I mean, I loved them before, but then, but really, and I'm hearing them in a whole new way. So I may have to pony up for a little additional money each month uh, once my trial is over. Most playback systems, if they were designed in the last five years, can handle HD. So chances are good that even your laptop will be able to render uh, HD sound. And that's our show. I, you know, I came across that story about the fire. wanted to share it with you. I wanted to look into a few questions I had about sound and compression. And because I definitely noticed the difference in the quality of MP3s even over the last 15 years. And really, Amazon HD and Ultra HD is really just kind of hitting the market now. So we're really kind of in a boom time for compressed but still quality audio. Uh, thanks for listening. That's our show. Be sure to check us out on a440pod.com. Tell your friends, download the episodes on iTunes so our rankings soar. Thanks, friends. Let's jam again soon. Oh, on today's episode, we've been listening to pianist George Fiore and the Seattle Symphony. Yep, that's my great Uncle George. The opening track was Beethoven's Piano Sonata Quasi Una Fantasia in C-sharp minor, opus 27, Moonlight Adagio. The middle track was Beethoven's Piano Sonata in D minor, opus 31, Adagio. And we're going to close it out here with Beethoven's Piano Concerto Number no. 5, Allegro. Miss you, George.